Rim the Tin Man's Bin Bag, you skin faced Brefanies. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I'm over here in Vancouver. I'm in sunny Vancouver, looking out the window of a hotel. The sound in this room is a bit shit. It's a bit echoey. Echoey sound. Not the best. But I'm using a little technique, actually, which I've never done before. Like, I used to climb into the duvet. I used When I used to have to record podcasts in hotels before, I would climb into the duvet and adopt, like, a praying position. And I'd have to record the podcast like that, hunched up in a ball for hours. Deeply uncomfortable and manic behaviour, but not anymore. And I got this idea from the rapper Pitbull. Mr. Worldwide. Pitbull. Pitbull who makes music for bouncers Pitbull looks like a bouncer and he makes music that bouncers listen to and he calls himself Mr. Worldwide I'm nothing against Pitbull I just can't get my head around him what the fuck is Pitbull I just if you told me that Pitbull was like a CIA operative the whole time and this is why he gets to be Mr. Worldwide and he gets to tour all over all these countries around the world but really it's just a CIA operation if you told me that I'd go yeah that makes sense but anyway I was on TikTok and Pitbull came up Mr. Worldwide and they asked Pitbull does he spend much time in the studio recording and he says no he doesn't record in the studio at all he's Mr. Worldwide he could be anywhere in the world at any point he only records in hotel rooms And then the interviewer was like, what? You only record in hotel rooms, how do you do that? And then Pitbull said, I tour with an audio engineer at all times. And what we do is, we get the bed, turn it up. Like, so put the bed on its side, so it's standing up, right? And then face that against where the curtains are. And then you create a little vocal booth. And that's how Pitbull records his vocals when he's in hotels. Well, that's how I'm recording this podcast right now. Mr. Worldwide. Glamorous stuff, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here in Vancouver. Stuffed between a carton and an upright bed. And, like, the bed is upright against the window. And I was thinking, what what if the bed went forward and then burst through the window? If that happened, I I wouldn't have an excuse. If the police came, it would just look like... Oh, this little shit came to Vancouver and he sold out a gig. And because of that now he thinks he can throw TVs and beds out windows like he's a rock star. That's what people would assume. And if I give him the real excuse, which is... I took the advice of Mr. Worldwide about how to professionally record audio in a hotel and the bed accidentally fell out the window. No one would believe me, because that sounds mad. But it's not going to happen. What would be more likely to happen actually is that the bed will fall forward and crush me against the window and then I suffocate (laughs) that'd be an interesting death again no one would believe that either they'd think it was a sex thing how did he die he tried to asphyxiate himself against the window with a giant bed he fantasises about being erotically entangled with large animals he was replicating the sensation of being asphyxiated by a donkey and why did he have a microphone and why did he have headphones on? He was recording the, the sound of himself being asphyxiated by a donkey so that he could pleasure himself to it later. And that's how he died. But none of this is going to happen. Everything's fine. 
I'm just standing here in a hotel room in Vancouver, between a window and an upright bed, so that I can get the best quality audio for you cunts. So Canada has been fantastic. I was in Toronto, did a wonderful gig there. Now I'm in Vancouver, lots of traveling, and my body clock is all over the place. I think I'm on, I'm on opposite time to back home. I'm eight hours behind. The culture shock that I've gotten as a result of the legal cannabis dispensaries is mad. It's easier, more open, and less stigmatized here to buy cannabis than it is to buy cigarettes or even fucking nicotine vapes. I went to get fluid for my vape and I had to present my ID before I was even allowed into the shop to see the fucking vape fluids. But with cannabis here, the shops are like Mac stores or something. Capitalism has completely taken over. It's like you're going in buying a new phone and the people who work there really know what they're doing. And you just tell them how you want to feel. You tell them how you want to feel. I'd like to feel euphoric. And I don't want any anxiety. And then they go, here you go. This is what you'd like. And it's just mad to see that the same thing at home gets people thrown in jail. And a cannabis breeder in Toronto came to my gig. And he bred a strain of cannabis and named it after Silken Thomas, my dearly departed cat. And I hope we see this in Ireland soon. Because they've done it so responsibly here as well. When you buy cannabis products here, there's warnings on the front. It's clearly for adults. And what you get is choice, variety and information to make responsible decisions. And you're not criminalised. And you know exactly what it is you're getting. And it was lovely to see all that and to witness it and to observe it. Especially in the context of last week's podcast where I spoke to Dr Sharon Lambert about the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs in Ireland, or hopefully at the end of that, we will start to see change. We'll start to see more mature legislation around drugs, which is health-focused rather than something which just criminalises people. So for this week's podcast, I have a chat with an absolute legend called Devin Townsend. Very, very important heavy metal musician from Vancouver and when I say important I'm not using that word lightly Devin Townsend has been making heavy metal music since the 80s and his contribution to metal as a genre literally changed metal that's how important he is and we had a wonderful conversation about art we had a conversation about art so If you're a Devin Townsend fan who's coming to this podcast to to listen to this, just a heads up. This isn't an interview, because I don't really do interviews. So you might be disappointed because I'm not going to be asking Devin lots of specific questions about his work. Instead, it's it's a conversation about art between two people who love art. The other thing too regarding this gig, it was a strange enough audience this is a thing that happens sometimes when, when I gig outside of Ireland. Now, it's never happened in Canada before. It's usually more of an Australian thing. But anyway, at my Vancouver gig, where there was like 1,500 people in the audience, there was about 10 Irish people. And I don't think these Irish people listen to the podcast or have much awareness about what the podcast is or what it's about. Instead, 
they're just they're fans of of the song Horse Outside from the Rubber Bandits from 2010 and there was about 15 maybe of these people in the audience interestingly they were young because the thing is if you remember Horse Outside you'd be in your 30s now because it was 2010 these people were young they were in their 20s and I think what this is and I've spoken about this before so that song Horse Outside the Rubber Bandits song that has now become like a folk song that gets played alongside the Dubliners and the Clancy Brothers in Irish pubs abroad. So if you go to an Irish pub in Canada, in Australia, in Dubai, wherever, there's a dude there with a guitar doing Irish rebel songs and he will perform cover versions of the Dubliners, the Clancy Brothers, the Wolf Tones and then he'll throw a fucking horse outside in there as if it's also a folk song. I love that. I think that's amazing. I, I'm fascinated that a pop song from 2010 has taken this new life as a folk song. And if you heard it in a set, it could be written in 1860 and you wouldn't know. I really love that. But it has created an, a, a new generation of Horse Outside fans. So there was quite a lot of people at, not quite a lot, there was about 15. There was about 15 people at my gig in Vancouver who don't listen to the podcast, don't know what the podcast is about, and have a kind of vague feeling of, oh, it's the guy with the plastic bag, it's the horse outside man. So they came to the gig. And now I don't have a problem with these people coming to the gig. Everyone's welcome to come to a gig, of course. Everybody's welcome. The issue is, is that for these people, the show is now instantly disappointing. Because I think for them, they were thinking... He's going to come and do his songs. The song about the horse. And they're like. Why is he talking about art for over an hour. And everything's really quiet. So there was like 15 people at the gig. I saw Irish flags. And as soon as I saw Irish flags. I was like oh fuck. Fuck you don't want Irish flags at a live podcast. So. These people. They weren't happy with the show. Obviously. Because it's me talking about art with Devin Townsend. So they were quite chatty. There was a good bit of heckling unfortunately. And they were consistently getting up out of their seats and going to the bar. Because they were drunk. And the thing is even though it was a tiny amount of people. And there was like 1500 people at the gig. All it takes is a tiny amount of people. To change the tone of an entire room. When you're doing something intimate like a live podcast. So the reason I'm letting you know this is because my job on stage as a professional is to go, okay, there's 15 lads here and they're drunk and they love horse outside. Okay, fair enough, they've paid for their tickets. So me then as the performer on stage, I take note of that and I go, okay, I have to adjust my tone now so that these people feel welcome. So this podcast isn't, isn't hugely podcast huggy. I'm quite vibrant, I'm quite exuberant, I'm quite enthusiastic. This was done basically to to find a compromise in the room and to entertain everybody. Now there was a good bit of heckling, but luckily I was able to use artificial intelligence technology to run the recording through this and it cut out a load of the background heckling so it doesn't actually interfere with the recording. Now when I mean heckling, not necessarily people being mean or bad, 
just a drunk man shouting Roscommon for no reason, or trying to sing Ole Ole Ole. Imagine a stag party came to a live podcast where two people are talking about art. That. So the audience was like 70% Canadian people who listen to this podcast. Forever Brendan's and steeplechasing Rita's. So it was like 70% those Canadian people. Then 38% Irish people living in Vancouver who actually listen to the podcast. And then just a tiny percent of a group of lads going, I don't know what this gig is, but I'm going to get drunk and bring an Irish flag and shout the lyrics of a song from 13 years ago and see what happens. But despite that, it was a cracking gig and the conversation that I had with Devin Townsend was thoroughly enjoyable and through editing and other techniques, I've managed to actually get out most of the heckling. So this is this is a good podcast. I just realised there I said... 70% of the audience were like Canadian and then 38% were Irish. I know now that that's impossible. <laughs> yeah, but I'm shit at maths. I'm terrible at maths. I'm so bad at maths that I will say something like 70% of the audience and then 38% of the audience. I'm that bad at maths. But I just spotted it now and I'm going to leave it in. But in future, if I'm doing a gig outside of Ireland... And you're Irish abroad. And one of your buddies is like, I'm going to go and see the Blind Boy podcast because I love that song from 13 years ago. If you wouldn't mind just having a word in their ear and going, do you actually, do you listen to the podcast? Do you know what the podcast is? Maybe you should listen to it and then consider whether you want to go to the gig. Because the gig might be really, really, really disappointing for you. It might be a really shit bad show for you if you think... You're going to something where there's a lot of songs. I think that's the most diplomatic approach I can take because I don't want to be an arsehole saying, oh, I don't want you to come to my gig. No, it's just, if you think the gig is something completely different, then it's going to be disappointing for you. It's not going to be enjoyable. Everybody's welcome. So here's my chat with the magnificent Devin Townsend. You don't have to be into heavy metal to listen to this. This is a conversation about art between two people who love art and love creativity. And I say as well in the intro of this, I say Devin Townsend has no business being on this podcast. And what I mean by that is, he does not need to be on this podcast. He's a legend to end our legs. He doesn't need promo. He's Devin fucking Townsend. And if you listen to metal, you know who he is. He came on the podcast because... We just became mates over the years. We became buddies through mutual love of each other's work and just having good conversations, having a lot in common. I've got an unbelievable fucking guest tonight. Um, This person is a fucking legend. This person has no business being on this podcast. He's doing it, seriously, he's doing it because he's sound and we get along and we have crack. He's a heavy metal musician, right? But not just a heavy metal musician. He's somebody who, whose work changed what heavy metal music is. If he was a DJ, it'd be Carl Cox. It's not Carl Cox. It's Devin Townsend. Come on out, Devin. What's the crack? 
So we can do it. This is the best way. We, we, oh, bo okay. we both understand our way around the mic. Yeah. That was... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually... I'm not sure if I should talk about how much I loved your story or if I'm not sure if I have to pee. <laughs> I think I definitely love the story. Man, that was, that was amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go through some of the formalities for people who don't know. Sure, sure, sure. Um, you started off uh, with, uh, with a project called Strapping Young Lad. Then you went on and did solo stuff and then the Devon Townsend project. Mm. You, for such a <laughs> kind of a, a, a nice, quiet man, your music is fucking heavy. Um, I don't know whether me, sometimes I call you the Enya of metal. I love that. Other times I call you the Aphex Twin of metal. But like, I, I can't, what I love about your work is I, I can't define it, I can't pin it down. It, it sounds like metal, but you do so much shit in it that's weird. And I adore metal, now I love metal, but I do find that it can be quite a conservative genre. Mm. It's, it, it likes to stay the same sometimes. Mm. And you're just naturally outside the box. You just love doing weird shit. I, I mean, I think I can uh, relate to you in, in a number of ways. And I think hypersensitivity is one of the defining characteristics of heavy music. Maybe not, <clears throat> maybe not full stop because you get the impression that there's some of it that's just, you know, cathartic for the sake of being a knuckle-dragging musical force, right? But I think that for me, as a kid, I was always hypersensitive to my environment. Like things affected me in ways that were uh, arguably uh, overdramatic. And so I think that when it comes to creating something sonically, your desire to represent that sensitivity uh, manifests itself with heavy music in a way that very few other genres can, can achieve. One thing I'd love to know about, right? You were influenced by the Clancy Brothers. Oh, very much. Oh, my God. Yeah. My grandfather was from Dublin. And uh, uh, it was, it was uh, Christmas time. It was always held this. Wait, that's not the part I want. <laughs> Christmas time was always, you know, it was, you know, I love my grandfather very much, but he insisted on everybody singing Clancy Brothers. But the sense of timing was so fluid because Johnny Cash was also such a part of it that it became this kind of authoritarian tempo that we had to follow. And so every Christmas there was this oncoming dread that we're going to have to sing these songs and follow these tempos and learn the chords. And, and that goes against the fluidity of Irish traditional music. Irish traditional music is very fluid. Yeah. It's not about structure. It comes from a folk tradition. It's... it's, it's Anything I always find music that's anti-colonial and it, music that comes from an oppressed people mm. tends not to be heavily structured. Like if you think of what I adore about the blues mm. is with the blues music, it came from enslaved African-Americans who had like Western instruments that have fretboards. So it, it's, it's the Western notes. Mm. And then because their ancestors came from Africa, where in Africa you have different notes, the blues was a beautiful compromise. So they get the slide out and the slide is a way to get these notes that are within the, the structure of Western music. And Irish music is like that. 
we're not really strict. It's about the crack. But it's true, the crack is the spirit, the spirit, the feeling. There's no right or wrong. Is the crack present or is it not? So to do it, to hear that like when you were a kid, someone was making you do the Clancy Brothers the right way. Yeah, that's a That's mad. Counterintuitive, right? Yeah, it sounds very Protestant. Yeah, I think... I <laughs> but it does. Well, it's funny, actually. Uh, his father was a preacher as well, so I think that there is probably no small amount of truth to that. Okay. Do you know much about the, the, the way that 440, uh, like the, the way that... Instruments are tuned to 440. 440 hertz, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you know much about that? No, I said 40 like a, like a Canadian person there. <laughs> 40. 40, yeah. Um, I, I, I know 440 hertz, but I don't know... Well, apparently, I don't know enough about it to be, uh, to be definitive with it, but apparently it was based on something to do with the Second World War. Wow. And in fact, 432 is actually where the human ear gravitates towards. Mm-hmm. And so everything sort of uh, gravitates towards this thing. And so they've got a lot of uh, revised versions where you can put it into a DAW and sort of make it 432 and I mean it's it fucks with people's heads well I think it's got a more sonorous vibe in some way but we were talking about Enya earlier and the album Watermark changed my life we laugh at Enya in oh, Ireland some lads Enya and no, I'm serious Enya yeah. is an unbelievably important artist and mm-hmm. outside of Ireland she's given the respect that she deserves uh, I'm serious yeah. lads Enya took Irish traditional music, mixed it with synthesizers, and created something that is only Enya. She's as in, like, I consider Enya to be as important as Brian Eno. Mm-hmm. And with Brian Eno is considered an ambient artist. He makes ambient music. And I think there's a bit of a misogyny in, in how Enya's not called ambient, she's called New Age. Mm. And the difference between ambient and New Age is... Ambient music is like, it's like it has artistic rigor. But new age is like wallpaper. It's what you play when you're getting a massage. Mm. You don't listen to it for the pleasure of the art. It's, it's functional design music. And I want to hear Enya being spoken about as an ambient musician on the level of Brian Eno, because that's what she fucking is. What's well, interesting, it's like I got into... But seriously. <laughs> I got into Enya because I was so into new age music. Oh, you were yeah. into New Age music. Oh my God. How crazy. did you get into New Age? I don't know. It was, it was uh, when I was very young, I was interested in the ideas of like astral projection and, and just, you know, sort of uh, lucid dreaming and things like this. And there was the soundtrack that came along with that oftentimes had people that were instructing you how to fall asleep and how to sort of, but the one guy had a, a very interesting way of saying the word nostrils that's the one thing i remember so as he was going through with the binary beats and the and the flutes and everything playing it would pull you right out of that with that particular word but since how did he say nostrils he said nostrils (laughs) nostrils yeah and then i adding some extra fucking consonants in there (laughs) and those nostrils nostrils i found myself fascinated with the idea of flute i liked paul horn I uh, like the. There's a lad called Paul Horn who's famous surely, for playing flute. Surely. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's a rebel. Yeah, man. Oh, I just loved it, man. I thought New Age music was really cool, but it, it, it didn't mix particularly well with the aesthetic that came from living in Surrey. You know? <laughs> It was ACDC and Trans Ams and Metallica and, you know, and Judas Priest, and that was great. But I also wanted to throw some Enya and flute music in there, right? 
What about um, Black Sabbath? Did you get into Black Sabbath? Never really. What? Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's certain, I was Slayer as well. I never really resonated with Slayer. But why either. not Black Sabbath? Were you a bit too young? I don't think it was the intent, in a way. You know, I just wasn't attracted to it in the same way that I was with Led Zeppelin, I guess, or Pink Floyd even. Do you know why I love Sabbath? Because I really, really love Sabbath. And, and the, what I, here's what fascinates me about Sabbath, and this is what changed my opinion of him, is, so Black Sabbath came from, Birmingham, mm -hmm. and they would have grown up, they would have been kids in the 1940s, and Birmingham was very heavily bombed in the Second World War. So when they were children, when they would go to school, it would be completely normal for a literal Nazi bomb to be found, and it might blow up and kill everyone, and there were sirens, and this was their childhood, was the trauma of war happened before I was born, but we're still living with this. Mm. And then, when Sabbath first came to America, their audience was made up of Vietnam vets who'd just come back. They, they used to get vets in the front audience and there'd be dudes in wheelchairs and their friends would get them to stand up. And all these Vietnam vets who'd just returned from war found themselves attracted to the music of Black Sabbath. Mm. And I find that fascinating. I find it fascinating that for me, it has to be something about their sonic landscape is about trauma and war specifically, and it came out through the sound. And of course, Tony Iommi chopped his finger off. Yeah. And that... Used a thimble. Yeah, you, yeah. You, I love that. <laughs> when you first heard him, what was your reaction? What was the first song that you heard? Uh, Paranoid. Okay. Which I heard when I was about seven. Um, I, I find them... I, it's, I don't like Led Zeppelin. I find there's a, there's a, a pretentiousness to Led Zeppelin, whereas with Sabbath... They don't give a fuck. And Ozzy is really silly as a person. And his lyrics are silly. And there's an authenticity to Sabbath that it's like Tony Iommi loves playing guitar. He's great at it. I love the fact that because he's missing fingers, there's a simplicity. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone ever... But, it's a, but simplicity is beautiful. Simplicity is great. There's an authentic simplicity to Sabbath that I can really relate to. I think it's a synesthesia. Like I find that you have real synesthesia. Very much, yeah. yeah. And I find that certain tonalities uh, are reflected in nature. So, born and raised in Vancouver, it was at least when I was younger, it rained so much here that so much of my creativity was attached to the weather that certain tonalities I found would remind me of it, like a suspended or a whole tone. Uh, certain things, like I remember living out in in Surrey years ago. My first guitar, we would go out and and play the guitar when it was raining with a delay pedal because the sound of that delay pedal and those tonalities reminded me of that environment mm -hmm. and i think it was less about robert plant for led zeppelin but uh, a lot of what jimmy page did in open c tuning mm -hmm. uh, which is a tuning that i use exclusively in my own work as a result of that mm -hmm. uh, defaults to a suspended chord and I think there's something psychologically with the sound of a suspended chord that perhaps maybe it was just where I was at on an emotional level where nothing ever resolves and with Sabbath it was it was visceral in a way that I didn't uh, relate to as a kid mm -hmm. and I think it was the same thing with Slayer it was so visceral that I was always trying to figure out what the intent is and I, I even asked people uh, why why do I not relate to it what is the intent of this music in your in your opinion right and I think that it was less about the intent of Zeppelin and more about the tonalities and how it reminded me of the rain and the, and the mountains. And with, and with Black Sabbath, it was 
I, I, you know, Ozzy, I, I, you know, it was great, right? But at the same time, it just wasn't a, it wasn't an emotional connection. I love thinking about music and how music develops in terms of like an environment. Like you're saying there, thinking about rain and the mountains. Totally. Like, you know, Gregorian chant. Mm -hmm. So Gregorian chant, I think it was up the 12th century. And it was monks singing in, in a huge chamber, basically, right? And it's just this, it, 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 it's a bit like a cave, a monastery. And all the monks are singing and they sang together and they kind of stayed around the same octave. And then what happened is in the 13th century, they built Notre Dame Cathedral in France. And the mathematics of how they built Notre Dame, which went up in fives, now that's the architecture of a building. When monks sang their Gregorian chant in this building, they naturally started to harmonize with the fucking architecture of the building. No one said it to them, but music is symmetrical vibrations that go through air. So these vibrations are going to correspond with the mathematics of a building. That's awesome. Isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is. Because it's like, in a sense, it's like uh, everything is vibration at a certain speed. And so music is corresponding to it in a different in a different way. So in a sense, every environment has got some sort of corresponding frequency that you could probably adhere to. But I guess a lot of that has to do with bias as well. Like if you were born and raised in a place where you're surrounded by that, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, insecurity or, or fear, you, you might be connected. You mean emotions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I, I think that was the, the connection to, to Enya's music. The first record, not mm -hmm. the first record, uh, Watermark. Mm -hmm. It was because it had a lot of minor in it. Like after she achieved phenomenal success, a lot of it was very sort of saccharine. Yeah. Know? A lot of it was major and, and commercially amazing for her as a result. But Watermark had this sort of sense of isolation. There's a song called Exile on there where it's just a single voice and a flute. Mm -hmm. And it just, it seemed so uh, evocative. And the times that I've been, yeah, it's not even necessarily Ireland, but uh, you take that ferry from Ireland to Scotland and you're mm -hmm. along the top there where it's just rugged. Mm -hmm. But that sort of environment is evocative of those sort of uh, sounds. And to be able to capture that, I think, is the, almost the, the test of, of an art form for me. Like if you're able to listen to an artist and say, okay, so what I'm getting from this is evocative of a place mm -hmm. or a person or an emotion. And, and yeah, no, I, I think that was it. It was, the, it was the tuning of the guitar in Led Zeppelin that really... Like when I, when I listen to, we'd say, 90s hip-hop, I can tell when I listen that East Coast hip-hop, I know by the way the beats are and how close things are. This was music that was made and also debuted with very tall buildings around. Mm. I can tell that. Yep, yep. When I listen to West Coast, Dr. Dre and G-Funk, I can hear the wide open spaces that they have. Mm. Like even, you know that band Kaios? Of course. So Kaios, what I heard is, so Kaios was a Josh Ham's band and they're, they uh, pioneered a, a genre called, is it sludge metal? Stone or rock? Stone or rock. <laughs> yeah. So, but what I heard, how they got their sound, which is like a real slow metal, quite, di quite different to yours. Mm -hmm. They were living in the Palm Springs desert in California where there's fucking nothing. Mm -hmm. It's desert and there's a mountain two miles in the distance. And when they were teenagers, they would play outside and they would try to play Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. 
they couldn't play fast because the echoes from the mountain were too extreme. The echoes would come back and they would go out of time. So they slowed their music down to match the echo of the mountain and invented a genre of metal. It's also interesting that your own bias is going to determine whether or not you resonate with it. Someone else could just go, fuck this, I'm not playing with those cunts of mountains. <laughs> so, so where were you? So you were born in Limerick, right? Yeah. So... <laughs> so I guess there's some sort of cultural familiarity with what they were going through in Birmingham. Is there, is there some sort of... Don't say stab city to a Limerick man. <laughs> The cultural phenomenon, I'll tell you the thing with Limerick, and this is one of the things with, with like, when we started off as the Rubber Bandits, because that's how I met you, Devin, was you, yeah. you, you became a fan of the Rubber Bandits. Oh, yeah. the best, man. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, Limerick, like, even when we mentioned Limerick there, someone shouted Stab City, because <laughs> Limerick has got a bad reputation. It's considered somewhere that's very, very violent. It's not. It's just some places get these labels, and Limerick got that and chicken hut, which is good. That's, we're okay for being famous for fried chicken, but when, when the bandits came about, I really wanted to do hardcore gangster rap, but it's like, <laughs> we're from Limerick and we're not gangsters. <laughs> but the, 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 it's the label of, when we started doing it, people assumed like, oh, they're from Limerick, they must be serious boys. And then you listen to the lyrics and it's a, it's a love song to a greyhound, yeah. you know? Yeah. So we use that, we use the fact that we knew people would have a presumption of what we would be or what Limerick was like, and then flip it on its head and go, actually, no, we're just lovely boys talking about greyhounds. <laughs> the, uh, I, I would love to hear more um, about uh, the game show. Some of the almost impossible game oh my show. God. Some of the sentences that you strung together were unbelievably poetic about things that had no right to have poetry. And it was <laughs> just yeah. It's bouncing over his head like a single gray testicle. I remember that. <laughs> I don't even remember oh that. Oh my god, dude. I remember I remember sitting in a car with my buddy when we were when we were uh traveling and I said, You fucking have to watch this and it's just how did that come about and ah. why can't i find it anywhere because it's yeah the so best. itv this channel in the uk had this terrible game show <laughs> so it was a really bad game show it was like like takeshi's castle but full of people from fucking sheffield <laughs> and they had this thing made and then they were looking for voiceovers yeah. so they came to us yeah. so i'm kind of going this is shit, I'm fucked, but I need the money, I need this job. Sure. So how can I subvert this? How can I get something that's on TV that is actually pretty bad and then do something funny and weird with it? And luckily the producers and, and the commissioner were like, actually this is quite good, quite a nice juxtaposition. Yeah. So they're not expecting lines about testicles. So it was one of the few times <laughs> on TV that I had this full creative control. Brilliant. So when I was writing the script, yeah. oh man, I, I used to go into, I'd go into dictionaries from like the 16th century. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And pick out phrases and words that aren't That's used great. anymore and figure out what can I get on TV this, because it was primetime ITV. Yeah. And you could watch it without the sound if you want. It's just people falling over. That's all it is. <laughs> but when you have something, when you have the simple comedy of someone slipping on a banana peel, yeah. 
Yeah. And once that's there, you can do what you want over it. Yeah, but what you, uh, what, because uh, I watched it with my son when, we, when, when he was very young, and, and remember thinking, like, some of the people were so abhorrent that you chose. Yeah. And just the idea of taking that fucking guy and putting him on a, a greased piece of metal with a tiny bicycle with an oversized heavy hat. Yeah. So there's no way that he's not going to, but his pride forces him to continue over and over and over. Yeah. It, was, it was delicious, man. Thank you very much. <laughs> but that is there, because we spoke earlier about um, the definition of absurdity. Yeah. And the definition of absurdity is we understand that life is meaningless. We know as humans that, that the universe is chaos, but we still search for meaning within that. And that search for meaning within what we understand to be meaningless, that's absurdity. So you think that that search for meaning is based in a fear of death? I, I think it is. I think we, we, we can't uh, reckon with our own impermanence. Uh -huh. I think, um, like even we were talking about creativity earlier, like, like sometimes I go like, why the fuck do I do this? Why do I write a short story? Why do I do any creativity? And sometimes I think at the core of me, it's, well, fuck it. Maybe I can avoid death. Maybe my thing can live beyond and I'm leaving something behind because I don't want to rot with the worms. Do you, do you actually think that? Not really, it's deeply unconscious. <laughs> well, then I think on some level it's, it's interesting because it's, it's the more you're able to uh, intellectualize your process, the more it becomes difficult to continue because the effort that goes into doing any of these things, like to do that game show, to do an album, to do the podcast, it takes an absurd amount of effort. Mm -hmm. It takes an absurd amount of logistical thinking in order to mm -hmm. keep it active. But you can't rationalize that strictly on no. absurdity. I mean, can you? The, the, the key is, and I think you'll relate to this, is there's the, there's the, the creativity that comes from within you, the, 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 the feeling of flow, the, the emotional part of it that you can't put words upon. Mm. That has to come through. And then as a professional, you have your craft. There's the things that you know. And you have to balance those two things. But you can't be 100% craft because then it's shit. Mm. But you can't be 100% feeling because then it's mad. Mm. Mm. I, just, I keep thinking as, as uh, we were saying backstage there, it's, and it seems like it's, it's such a, a luxury to even be able to think this way, but what is the, what is the reason for creating art? You had said that in your opinion, humanity is the only creature that's able to articulate itself creatively. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because humanity is also the only creature that as far as we know, I don't know, uh, has a sense of self. I do have a theory about this. Okay. So humans are the only animals that can, we, we're the only ones with, with, with a proper structure of language. When you have a proper structure of language, we're, we're capable of holding an idea outside of ourselves. I can say apple, Everyone in this room can think of an apple and we can all talk about an apple. Other animals can't really do that. And the capacity for us to all think about an apple, that's called culture. Like there's an experiment they did about what culture is. They got a bunch of monkeys and they put them in a cage, like 10 monkeys. And there's a lock on this cage. So in order for the monkeys to escape, they got to solve the lock, a simple puzzle. One monkey goes to the lock, figures it out and exits. Second monkey goes to the lock, does the same thing, figures it out for himself and exits. And it happens again and again until all the monkeys have left. Then they put 10 humans in the cage. 
the first human goes to the lock, figures it out and says, this is how you do it, lads. And everyone leaves. And that's culture. The capacity to use language, to share ideas among, in a system. And that's uniquely human. And I think with art and creativity and mythology in particular, because before we had writing, we had mythology, oral mythology, and this is present with all cultures. And the thing with oral mythology and oral storytelling, it's a way to map your landscape. You can't just have a mountain. The mountain has to have a spirit attached to it or the tree has to be magical. And if everything has a brilliant story, then you understand your environment because you can't write it down. I think the reason human beings as an animal have mythology and storytelling and creativity is to keep us in line with biodiversity. If you think of it this way, when, the, like in Ireland, it used to be illegal up until the 1600s to kill a white butterfly because people believed that a white butterfly contained the soul of a dead child. So you don't fuck with butterflies. Seriously, in Ireland, the goddess Bridget, bees, used to belong to the goddess Bridget and she lived in the other world of, of like a parallel universe. So the bees were the goddess Bridget's bees and they flew in the mist into our dimension and that's how they fertilize flowers. But you didn't fuck with bees because bees were magical. So mythology, and this is with all cultures, it keeps us not destroying the environment. It keeps us afraid and respectful of the environment because we have stories around it and we're fearful. And I think that's why mythology and creativity exists because once you take that away with colonialism then everything's up for grabs now you take what you want i wonder if it's our primary dysfunction though i wonder if our need to validate ourselves externally is what leads us to the things that we found ourselves in as opposed to finding that that sense of validation internally and i, I often wonder if art is another manifestation of the same thing you know like the fact that we can externally say we know this is an apple like the reason for doing that, the reason for needing to do that, maybe like you say, mythology is coming back to the fear of the unknown. So if we have a story that validates its, its, its existence, then on some level it reminds us that we exist as well, and perhaps art is fundamentally rooted in that same dysfunction. Fucking hell. I wonder. <laughs> Time now for an ocarina pause. I don't have an ocarina because I'm in a hotel in Vancouver like Pitbull, between a window and a bed. What I do have is uh, a tube that a, a, a joint of legal cannabis comes in. And I'm going to play the legal cannabis tube and you're going to hear a digitally inserted advert. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.
That's the legal cannabis pause. That's the tube that a joint comes in when you buy it legally in a shop in Canada. I'm not breaking any laws. I'm not advocating for the breaking of laws. I'm in a country where it's legal and I just played played an empty receptacle that a joint came in. Um, Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. If you like this podcast, if it brings you merriment, joy, entertainment, distraction, whatever it does for you, please consider paying me for the work that I put in. Because this is my full-time job, this is how I earn a living. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month, that's it. And if you can't afford that, that's fine. You can listen to the podcast for free. Because the person who is paying, is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast, I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model, based on kindness and soundness. So support whatever independent podcast you enjoy. Leave a review, like it, share it on your Facebook. (laughs) Whatever the fuck. Social media is dead now, isn't it? Tell a friend. Tell a friend when you're in a shop, alright, about the podcast or about whatever independent podcast you enjoy listening to. Back to the... I've no gigs to promote. I probably do. But the list of gigs is back home in Limerick. So I'll promote that next week. Back to the conversation with the wonderful Devin Townsend. The first ever art that humans created. So I'm talking 50, 60,000 years ago. Cave paintings, but the paintings are of the human hand. So people 50,000 years ago would put their hand on a wall in a cave. They'd get like flowers or dye in their mouth and they'd spit on their hand and put it away and you're left with a handprint. And that's the earliest human art. But when I was staying in my hotel in Toronto, (laughs) there was this wooden headboard above my bed. And in the certain light, it's just loads of human hands of these fucking businessmen who are fucking someone. And it's just the prince of hands, and it reminded me of cave art, and all it was was a, a businessman and coke fucking someone. That's all it was. Dude. There was I, a beauty in it. There was a beauty in it. I think the prince of hands is a pretty good title, by the way. <laughs> yeah. The prince of hands, yeah. Hands, his man. royal highness. Yes, his royal highness. That's like a, a name for a man who's good at wanking. Yeah. The prince of hands? Yeah, yeah man. No, I, I, you know, I wonder even with that, with that first cave uh, art, you know, it's like by doing that, they're able to say, listen, I exist. That's I what I mean. Yeah. I'm somebody. I'm, so, I'm, I'm permanent. I'm yeah. not going to die. That's There's it. my fucking hand. And, and we're talking about some cunt's hand 60,000 yeah. years later. Yeah, well, you didn't die there. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, though, it's like, but again, what's, what's, if you're able to recognize that that's what's going on, what's your motivation to continue? Well, then what's the, yeah. <laughs> I mean, me, meaning, meaning, meaning. Well, okay, so, so, I pursue art. Obviously, it's how I earn a living. Yeah. But the earning, like, I'm gonna finish my book, and when that book is finished and published, that feels really, really sad. I hate it. It reminds me of death, straight up. When my book is finished and published, and it was same my last two books, the actual, it's out. I get a deep, dark feeling, and I know that that deep, dark feeling is the, my death. And what I love is the middle, the process, the doing. That's the enjoyable part. I hate the end, and I know that I hate it because it reminds me of death. Um, 
meaning is what I get from the bit in the middle. I f- when I'm achieving creative flow, mm. I feel the, the peak of creative flow. I'm in the dream world and I'm writing. It feels like I I am somebody and I'm here for a reason and my life has meaning in that moment. Is that is that in your definition of uh, what was it? Beckett, did you say? Or who was the one? No, Beckett was the absurdity. So Beckett Beckett's thing is is absurdity is the pursuit of meaning in something we understand to be meaningless. Do you agree with that? No. Okay. I don't agree. Like like I would be more kind of John Paul Sartre, which is, yes, I, I, I think the universe is meaningless, but however, there's a wonderful freedom in being able to find my own meaning. It's almost like you, you can ascribe meaning to what you choose, and that's, that's kind of the rub in a sense. It's, it's, again, when we had children, my, my uh, you know, the dark night of the soul of, of what you had once had your identity invested in is no longer... You can see through it in a sense. So your art started to mean less because now you have a little baby. But but the art, as a result, became a tangible expression of gratitude. And in that way, it I could I could I can back that. So because when we were chatting backstage, you 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 mentioned the word gratitude a lot when you were speaking about what art means to you. Mm. What do you mean there by gratitude? Well, I, I, grateful for who or what or I've got a really good friend who's got uh, multiple sclerosis. He's mm-hmm. he's had nothing but problems for years. And I talked to him today, mm-hmm. but I'm grateful uh, for his friendship. But I'm also grateful for the fact that I can walk and I can mm-hmm. create and I can I can learn. I mean, there was uh, you know those. I had a profound moment of humility uh, a couple of weeks back where I was like, oh, what a fucking asshole! Holy shit! But there was something about that that I was like, I'm really grateful for that. I'm really grateful to have the self-awareness. Yeah. You you did something that made you feel like an asshole, yeah. and you were grateful to have the self-awareness to totally. go, oh, I'm not happy with that. I'd like to change. Totally, man. New age. And that's a lot to be grateful because some <laughs> lads, some people don't. <laughs> but I think it's like if you can have a tangible expression of that in a painting or a book or a song or a dance then in a sense, it's like I can, I can get behind that as a rationale as opposed to I'm doing something of value or mm-hmm. I'm dispensing benevolence to others. It, mm-hmm. it seems like the more you, the further you go into any of those things, the more you're like, oh, I'm full of shit. It's just, mm-hmm. it's this or that or the other thing. It's a fear of death or it's a need for validation or what have you. But if you can say, listen, I've got time here. I'm fortunate to be able to do these things. I've got a certain amount of capacity to do those things. So that's what the the root of it is it's thank you you know mm-hmm. and I, I i can get behind that because as fucked as things are again the mountains and the the, the, the you know all the things that are external from us are just so awe-inspiring that it it warrants gratitude i guess on some level heavy metal i don't know <laughs> before <laughs> Before we take our interval, I'd love for you to describe what it's like to have synesthesia. Um, well, for those who, who aren't aware, uh, I was told that I had this, so I assumed that I do, but um, synesthesia is, and this is just me paraphrasing, when you connect certain stimulus to each other. So, for example, um, I think of 
the musical note C as being a circle in blue. And I think of A and as Do you blue. see these things? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And like A is red in a square and B is orange and G is dark green and D is dark blue and mm -hmm. C is light blue and, you know, C is a triangle. And, and, and so as a result of that, when you're playing shapes on the guitar or you're listening to, to music, it evokes feelings based on, on uh, sort of intangible aspects of, of the frequency range. And a lot of what I listen to is just not ambient music as much as just like sound mm -hmm. because you, it's almost like a watercolor for your environment. So if you're traveling as we do, as opposed to hearing somebody's hopes and dreams, which I just, I honestly don't give a fuck. It's like, you know what I mean? But if there's just something that acts as like an auburn watercolor, it's a rainy day out or it's a sunny day out. It, in the morning, I love listening to Tycho. In, in the evening and it's rainy and driving, I listen to Rapun. It's like there's things that I choose based on like a soundtrack that then illustrate that environment. And I just find that those sort of complementary sounds, I just really enjoy it. And I guess that's... How advantageous that. has that been to you as, as someone who makes and produces music? It's been, it's kind of... It's a, it's a dual-edged sword in that, uh, as a result of that, I learned uh, to do what I do with a certain degree of proficiency without actually knowing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And then when we had the opportunity to start working with orchestras and choirs, I realized I didn't have the vocabulary to be able to uh, communicate in a way that was cost-efficient. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of retroactively go back, and it was, it was you know, you, you have this capacity to run, and they're like, okay, now you have to crawl. Here's where the violas live. Here's where the violins live. Here's where the celli live. And, and as a result of connecting those two dots, it's modular forms, elliptic curves. You know, it's like two different. Uh, I realized earlier I adjusted my balls while we were talking. So, <laughs> and I've been thinking about it ever since. So, I haven't let you know what, though. Yeah. They're good now, though, so we're... I'm wearing right. a plastic bag in my head. Yeah, I know, it's good. <laughs> you can do what you want. <laughs> like, you're there fucking going, oh, I'm worried about the, the impropriety of fucking adjusting my balls. That's you're talking true. to a fucking fella with wearing rubbish <laughs> on his head. <laughs> Nothing can go wrong. So what's the name of that particular store? Which story? The one with, no, the store that provides... Oh, this is Sword Shopping Center. In, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they closed down in like 2012 and then they had 10,000 bags and they gave them all to me. <laughs> so that's how long my career is, <laughs> pretty much. And I've used about a thousand so far, so. If you don't mind me asking, you were talking about a mausoleum? Yeah, okay. so my, I don't throw the plastic bags away. <laughs> um, I get a couple of uses out of them and then I keep them. Because the thing is as well is that it's, it's environmental. You can't, like, single-use plastic will never biodegrade. So when I get a single-use plastic bag and turn it into a mask, that's the only kind of environmentally sound thing you can do with this shit. <laughs> it is. It is. So I'm repurposing it and making it into a mask and getting multiple uses. And I never throw them out. I keep every bag I've ever used. And my plan is, when I'm older, I'm going to get a, build a giant kitchen sink, like 20 feet high, and I'm going to get every bag I ever wore and put it in a much bigger bag. And I'm going <laughs> to put that underneath the giant kitchen sink. And then I'm going to bury myself underneath it. Well, someone else will bury me. And there's my, there's my mausoleum. 
That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> All right. Mental health is a huge part of your music. Yeah. Um, one thing I often... So you know this thing with manifesting, people say manifesting, you ask the universe for nice things and it happens, right? <laughs> I don't believe that. But one thing I do believe is, if my mental health is in a good state and opportunities present themselves to me, I take those opportunities. But when I'm in a very bad place, opportunities are terrifying and I don't take them and I can't. And one of these things that happened to me was over lockdown, you contacted me with the opportunity to musically collaborate with you on a track. Mm. And I didn't take the opportunity. I didn't do it. Yeah, you did. Well, no, no, <laughs> we, had, we got a compromise. We yeah, had a compromise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had sent me a bunch of stems for a track. I had the opportunity to literally make some fucking music and have it on a Devin Townsend album. I didn't do it because my mental health was really, really bad. I let the, instead of saying to myself, fuck it, let's do it, what's the worst that can happen, let's have fun. I became terrified of it, I procrastinated, and then at the end I had to say to you, I can't do this, Devin, and then as a compromise, you got some bits out of my podcast and mixed it in with the track. But that there, I reflect on that as, as when my mental health is bad, opportunities are terrifying. I, I see everything that can go wrong. Instead of going, no, try it, and if you fail, fuck it. That's when I'm in a good place, that's, and, and when I'm like that, success happens. Conversely, you're, you know, the old adage, your, your vibe attracts your tribe. Yeah. I remember I kept thinking to myself, uh, I love you. Oh, thank you. No, I love you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Stephen. Yeah. I love you too. Yeah. What you bring to people, what you do, how you struggle through that, how you, like, I, yeah, it didn't matter at all. Even the nature of that project didn't matter about a, a collaboration. It mattered about, like, this is someone who I, I think is amazing, and I would love to just be present with them. That's it. And it was the fact that you said, uh, oh, I said, you know, can I use some of your podcasts? You're like, of course. And I was just like, that's all. Thank you. Thank you. Because more so than... More so than a collaboration, it was just that was such a a challenging time, and mm -hmm. it's it's almost like the 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 work that uh, I felt compelled to do at that time was a reflection of a shit chaotic time, mm -hmm. and it was just if we can get fifty or sixty people around us whom I feel are lovely people, mm -hmm. then it's it's a monument to a time, mm -hmm. and so the fact that you were okay with that. Uh, being involved meant a huge amount to me, man. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for asking yeah. me. Um, huge. Because there, there's a track on, on, is it your last album, Devin? Mm. Yes, and it's called The Yugas. Yeah. And elements of my podcast are in it. And the amount of Devin's fans who contact me thinking that their Spotify is broken. <laughs> They're listening to Devin's album and all of a sudden, like, my voice is in it and they're like, no, 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 no. There's, there's no way Blind Boy is on Devin. That's not happening. My, 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 my Spotify is broken and it's playing Devin's songs on his podcast at the same time. Well, on the opposite side, people are like, why the fuck would he work with you, man? Ah, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. I really, really appreciated it. We were talking about AI backstage 
And I heard a phrase the other day I thought was really interesting. Have you heard of Bach faucet? No. So basically the idea is um, with the onset of, of a vehicle of unlimited creative potential, like Midjourney or ChatGPT or, or what have you, there is unlimited amounts of hyper-creative content that in many ways humans aren't able to access at least that quickly. Mm -hmm. And the Bach faucet is a term for, uh, because it's no longer rare, the, uh, just the surplus of it loses its value. Of what? Of art? Of creativity? Of, of whatever the value that was ascribed to it in the first place. Because that's an interesting thing I think about like we've lost scarcity. The internet has, like I would, I, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember having to spend 25 euros on a CD. And if that CD was shit, I had to listen to it. <laughs> but I found amazing music that way. Whereas now I could go through Bruce Springsteen's entire catalog in 15 minutes and decide he was shit. Oh. I, you, 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 the scarcity meant you, but even you go back further, there was a time in history where someone heard Mozart once, mm. if they were lucky, if they were wealthy enough to get into a theater, they heard Mozart once and that's it. And it stays with them forever as a memory. Mm. I have to ask, what is the album that you remember spending 25 euro on that you hated? Like proper hated proper. and never. Yeah. Yeah. I had this band from the UK called The Doves. <laughs> um, they got five-star reviews in everything. It was like 2002. So I said, that's where my 20... Like, I was in school, 25 quid. That was months to save up. Yeah. And I got it, and I stuck with it for months. And I said, I'm sorry, this is harsh shit. Yeah. And, I st and I even go back to it on Spotify now, and it's like, sorry, it was harsh shit. But then another one was Discovery by Daft Punk. Yeah. which I got in the year 2000, I fucking hated it. <laughs> but I spent 25 quid on it, and it's one of my favorite albums of all time because I simply had to, I could not dispose of this thing that I'd spent money on. I had to work with it, and I went, actually, no, this is amazing, and I didn't get it at first. There was another thing that you did that I, I, I think was just so uh, stunning. I, I, it was, what was the, the Rubber Bandit's Guide to Everything? What was the oh, the one about philosophy. Yeah. The Rubber Bandit's Guide to Reality. My God. So that was, we, we, have, we have this TV station in Ireland called RTE. Yeah. How many and episodes of that was there? There was four. Jesus. There was the Rubber Bandit's Guide to Sex, the Rubber Bandit's Guide to Money. No, there was three. Sex, Money, and Reality. That's all there is. <laughs> and we, we, ha <laughs> we, we have this uh, TV station called RTE. They're not very creative. They're not very imaginative. So I wanted to make a documentary on the history of philosophy. That's what I wanted to do. But you can't go to this channel and say, I want to make a documentary about philosophy because they'll go, no, you're not, you fucking lunatic. <laughs> so what I told them instead was, I'm going to make a documentary about reality TV. You know, reality TV, Love Island, all that stuff. So they love that. Mm. So I called it the Rubber Bandit's Guide to Reality. Mm. They didn't know the difference. And then I spent all their money and came back to them with fucking... <laughs> And also, there's, there's a, the way we got around it, too, is we interviewed a real reality TV star in it. He was in um, The Only Way is Essex or something. His name is Stevie Johnson. Is The Only Way is Essex? Is that a reality TV show? 
Yeah, so he was in that. So we got his interview, so the channel heads are looking at the paper going, well, they have a real English reality TV star and they're interviewing him, that's good. But what we did was, I studied CIA, uh, CIA and KGB techniques about how to destabilize a person's reality. And we got this reality TV star, Stevie Johnson, and used CIA techniques to manipulate him into questioning his own reality. We, no, I'm serious, I'm not joking. It was fucking amazing. We, I edited his Wikipedia page <laughs> to say that he was investing in saunas. He wasn't, but it said it on Wikipedia because I changed it. And then when we were interviewing him, I pulled up his Wikipedia and says, it says here on Wikipedia that you're investing in saunas. And he's like, no, I'm not. And then I show it to him. And slowly but surely, he starts to become a sauna entrepreneur. So the interview itself was like four hours long. And this was a real posh English dude. So we kept at it and at it and at it. And by the end of it, we got him to dress up like he was in the IRA. And we'd use CAA techniques to do it. So like RTE didn't know they were fucking funding that. They didn't know that, but... That was fucking amazing. <laughs> um, something I'd like to ask you is... So you, your, your first break, as such, was when you got to sing on a Steve, with Steve Vai. Yeah. And you did that. And having done that, you, you, what I read was you hated the industry and wanted to move away from it or do something. Is, is that true or is that just something I read on Wikipedia? Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, <laughs> did you put it on there? <laughs> the, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a slight distinction between that being like an altruistic connection to my artistic motivation, just being a shithead 19 year old. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think because of, as we had, uh, mentioned earlier, my connection to nature being so fundamental to what I consider the source of the creative flow mm -hmm. to be connected to, I, and I, you know, I, strangely, I wasn't a social flower as a kid. Yeah. So I, I got this opportunity to go down to Los Angeles and participate in that, which I thought of clearly that's what it is. And this is early nineties LA metal scene, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was a, was a gong show. pretty superficial. Well, and it, but it was also, I came down, there were stars in my eyes thinking, well, everybody here has this connection to music. And you mean Sunset Strip, that, that scene? The whole thing, man. Wow. The whole thing. But, you know, I was like, I, you know, I, I, I'd had one relationship. I didn't do drugs. I didn't mm -hmm. drink. I went down there thinking, this is going to be a manifestation of my inner desire to represent my environment through sound. And that was And you're oh, fucking Steve Vai's yeah. singer, so that's like, pretty legendary shit. And he just came out of being like a legitimate rock star. Like there was an era where you could get away with being that guy. Like know? Steve Steve Vai, if you don't know who he was, when David Lee Roth went solo from Van Halen, because Eddie Van Halen is a legend with guitar, David Lee Roth was like, who's the next best guy? Or who who can I get who will make uh, Eddie Van Halen jealous, so he got Steve Vai. But the, the thing with Steve is his foundation though was with Zappa, so he was Of course, Zappa's and we right. both love Frank Zappa. Any Frank Zappa fans in the audience? Okay. Yeah, but I, I, yes, I do love Zappa, but I, I appreciate him more than love him for some I get you. Yeah, 
but because Steve's lineage was that, he was connected to music in a way that was fundamental in my estimation. So he had had this rather unfortunate experience of becoming a rock star, mm -hmm. but I think his psychology wasn't really that. So we met each other at this intersection in life where I was just a kid mm -hmm. and he was coming out of this uh, scene in a way where, you know, it was, it was a difficult thing for anybody to be 25 years old and have, you know, millions and millions of dollars and all these sorts of things. So, so my reaction to that scene was, I guess, petulant, but I didn't have the emotional maturity at that point to articulate it. So. Well, well, at the time, you're like, this is bullshit. I hate this. Well, I, fortunately, I moved in with a buddy of mine from Long Island. We shared a hotel or shared an apartment and he picked me up at the airport. And he's like, listen, before we start, everybody here is full of shit. And we're going to have, <laughs> we're going to have a hard time, you know, navigating this. So like I remember with Steve, poor guy, I love him. We're still friends this day, but my way of articulating discontent was I took a shit in his guitar case and then... <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ, then. But I mean, it, it said more than I was able to verbalize at that point. We, That's a big decision. We... I, <laughs> the fuck are you doing? I got to say, at the time, it was less of a decision than it would be now. Because, Were you drunk? No, I wish, man. Uh, <laughs> we did the Tonight Show, the Jay Leno Tonight Show. Yeah. And, and you we, shat on Jay Leno's chin. No. No, I wish it was that, actually. So what we were, we were managed by Desmond Child, who had written, like, all these big rock hits, mm -hmm. right? And he had groomed us a week or two before. He, he, they put this fake hair on, and it's like you have to look a certain way, and you have to pout. And So <laughs> before we did The Tonight Show, the night before, me and Mark, we shaved my head and my eyebrows, and, and then we went out, and they were just like, what the fuck? And then when we were at The Tonight Show, it was... There was a few people nice, but everybody was just really full of shit, I guess. And so at the end... Ah, oh, now I understand why you did this. So we were in the, we were in the green room after, and, and Mark and I, and he's still my buddy to this day, he's, I was like, dude, cover up the windows. And, like, and so we covered up the windows, and I got naked, and there was the phone there, like the, the green room phone, and I, I stuck it up my ass, and they took a bunch of photos. <laughs> and then we thought it was funny, and I went home... And we got a call the next morning from Desmond Child, who was going fucking bananas. And he's like, what did you do? And I was like, right. I didn't do anything. And he's like, you stuck the phone up your ass and took photos of it. And I was like, There's, they're like, we have all the cameras that they had in the green screen. <laughs> and so I remember, and Steve, who I love dearly, I remember him just being like, why did you... <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, and I didn't really have an answer. Again, I figured that at that point, I wasn't emotionally mature enough to articulate my discontent. So I figured... It was performance art, Your Honor. That's what it was. That's what it was, yeah. But it does, it, it feels like performance art. <laughs> what I like when, when you're saying... <laughs> Everyone is full of shit, so now yeah. automatically, yeah. you know, you're sticking a phone up your ass. The phone is how you communicate the shit that you're full of. This is it. Um, now it's full more. And But what I can't... Poor old Steve Vai's guitar yeah. case. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I feel bad for him, too. And it was funny because we... Did, well, did you have a problem with Steve? Was this like... <laughs> was it the Steve... His fame? Like, I mean, what, what, why would you shit in his guitar because case? Because I loved him. I loved him. <laughs> All right, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? No, I loved him, and I, 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 I thought that 
what the, the scene represented. I just didn't understand it because it seemed, it seemed incongruent with the person that I see. You know what okay, I mean? so you met this lovely dude called Steve, yeah. and it's like you are not the, the, your your Steve Vinus is very separate and different to who you are as a human being. And I couldn't, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't rectify that. And that, a lot of that was on me, clearly. But it was, it was our relationship has evolved over. Yeah. I mean, did he have a conversation with you? Well, I think that was the thing. Is, is who cleaned it out? I, 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 it wasn't I. At this stage, Steve I would have been big enough that he didn't have to clean shit out of his own guitar absolutely, case. Yeah, absolutely. I left it though, and I mean, it was um, when he found it, it was white. You know, like like. Oh, quite yeah. yeah. dog shit. A remnant of the past. Did you, that's the thing. Were you the one that was talking yeah, about that? Yeah, I'm big into white dog shit. So yeah. what, what is it? It's it's the is it part of the the feed? At one point, it had more lime in it. <sighs> So the, the only information I could guess, now I don't know how this, I'm talking about dogs here, not your bowels. <laughs> Apparently, before Ireland joined the European Union, there was quite a lot of ash in dog food, and this meant that there was a lot of white dog shit when I was a child. Right. But the other theory is, as a grown man, as a professional grown man, I just don't spend a lot of time in fields on the ground. So it's like, is there less white dog shit or do I just have responsibilities? Take my word for it. <laughs> but I, I can't explain how your fucking shit went white, man. Yeah, it's a lot of hash in the feed, man. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's interesting because I, I, I often think about geese as well because that oxidizes in a similar way. Right? Geese? Yeah, geese. Well, tell me about this. Well, so geese, goose shit is, is white as well. Now, here's the interesting thing about bird shit. Please. Birds, birds don't shit or piss. They do it all at once. One hole. And I know this because a fossilized dinosaur shit is called coprolite. And when they looked at fossilized dinosaur shit, they went, something's not right here. This shit is a bit like what a bird does. And it was dinosaur shit that led them to kind of go, maybe these are not lizards. Maybe they're a type of bird. Mm. Because dinosaurs are barred. T-Rex had feathers, I'm sorry to say it, but Jurassic Park was wrong. T-Rex had feathers and honked like a goose. That's what we know now. That's <laughs> that would ruin the movie. Yeah, slightly less intimidating. Completely gone. Don't give a shit about him. I wonder what the honk was like. I wonder if it was like really... Uh, I'd imagine it'd be a domineering honk. It would be a honk with presence at That's least. a band name. <laughs> domineering <laughs> honk. honk. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, when you were like, okay, this whole industry is shit, and oh, then yeah. you found it strapping young lad. Oh, it was before strapping. So, I was on tour with Steve, and we had a big blowout, and I broke a bunch of stuff. And then uh, I was on tour with a band from the UK called The Wild Hearts. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then after we, I broke all these things, Ginger, the singer, was just like, oh, you should join our band. And so I moved to the UK and I lived outside of Birmingham in a place called Wensbury, which is basically council housing and depression and like 75 uh, gentlemen's pubs. And, okay. And that was my introduction to drinking and drugs. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. oh my God, yeah, outside man. Birmingham. Oh yeah, man, because there was fuck all else to do, to be fair. Did right? you not have much uh, drinking done in Canada? Well, it's a different drinking culture. It is very North different, America. very yeah. different. Like people, in my experience with Canada and America, it's like people are shit-faced by eight. 
You know, they start at five and they're done by eight, and then it just turns into debauchery. But is but it, it big drinking here in Canada? Oh yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. is it? I, I feel, I'm like, but I, I like you have to go to a drink shop to buy drink. I can't just walk into Seven Eleven. They don't have any any cans. No, it's like Sweden. It's it's controlled by the government and the fact that it's it's okay. taxed. So if you get a four pack of of beer, it's it's like twenty bucks for like a. Okay, like in Ireland. Yeah. 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 Basically. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's. Uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about how you founded Strapping Young Lad. Oh yeah, and then I uh, I remember after the Wild Hearts because I I thought they were I love those guys they were brilliant but it was really a lot of drugs and it was a lot of toxicity. What and, type and of drugs? A lot of crack. Ah come on! Yeah. Not not me. Okay. Yeah, but it was like I remember just they were just like, would you like some of our crack? And I was like, no, I'm good. I you know. In fact, I remember touring and I had a. I, I bought a gas mask because everybody smoked cigarettes and I just wrote Canada man on the top and sat back petulantly. And I remember there was one night we were in East Germany and, and they, everybody was drinking and drinking and drinking. They'd never tried Jägermeister. And I was like, hey, you should try this Jägermeister. And how that night ended was East German police with guns to the back of the head of the tour manager and the bass player and the sound man punching the singer out quitting the tour and then we got kicked out of the hotel at like one or two in the morning and the tv flew out after because the drummer was in there and like really i'm just like i'm from guilford i'm just like wow this is this is out of my comfort zone in a country right? that doesn't exist in anymore it doesn't exist right so yeah yeah in the country it doesn't exist yeah and well and then, getting in trouble in east germany is like you fucked. don't want to do that that's the soviet union hucked yeah and i remember I got back to Vancouver, and the thing that I didn't uh, take into consideration is, as toxic as it was, that whole culture, like living in the UK, I was like, wow, this is fun. Like, they're all from Newcastle, mm -hmm. and the sense of humor was amazing. Mm -hmm. And when I got back to Vancouver, I was like, oh, I'm really bored now. <laughs> and so I was like, well, what we should do is in Vancouver, we should do drugs and drink. <laughs> ah. And then I decided that, um, my reaction uh, to the industry that I had interpreted as being one way, which is, of course, my own interpretation of it, I would use the facility that I had that was rooted in, I want to sing to the mountains and listen to Andy. I was like, I want to watch it burn. I want okay. to see how destructive we can make it. Yeah. But it was through that that I recognized my motivation was like a fear of anger. And so it took going through strapping to get to the point where I was able to sort of rationalize what had happened there. And it's funny because, you know, you go through all that period and experimenting with psychedelics when I was in my mid twenties and then doing interviews on it. And then people are like, and was it acid or mushrooms or? Oh, dude, I'll take it all, man. You know? yeah. 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 But it was, it was through that experience that, you know, cause I was in my early twenties and having not had experience with that when I was in my teens, I had already sort of developed this sense of, of self and identity that was compounded by, you know, arrogance and mm -hmm. fame and all these things. And so when I finally took drugs, I had a full blown Christ complex. And that's okay. It was crazy. It was like did the whole thing, walk around with white clothes and telling everybody what they needed to do and then consequently <laughs> having to apologize <laughs> to everybody. <laughs> About two years later I had to go up there. Sounds like a doctor like, as well, that's the best thing. Like, I remember going up to my mother after and being like, I'm sorry, 
and you know my wife and my friends and just like man that's that was a that was a less than violence to be like oh that happens to everybody who does that shit okay welp yeah man do you find it um <laughs> do you find it difficult to listen to some of the strapping young lads stuff because of where your head was at at the time uh, i like it i think it's great i mean it's I put, fucking amazing thanks man I put a lot of. I was listening to, to Goat today on yeah. the first album. Well, we did a record. And there's a real Goat in that, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. I could hear him. There was a record we did called uh, Alien that I was very proud of, and City was good too. But it was, I think, the thing that was, and this goes back even to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation is your motivation for your creative output. Uh, what is its source? And I think that unless you're willing to be hundred percent honest about where you are regardless of whether or not it's delusional or, mm -hmm. or or if you're able to articulate that in a complete sense whether or not you agree with it down the line you're able to recognize the honesty in it mm -hmm. and uh the value that i place on on the work and also the reason why i will fight uh for my ability to do whatever i want now that's separate from that stuff is because it's rooted in trying to find some degree of artistic truth. And, and man, if your artistic truth is the same when you're 50 as you were when you were 23, that yeah. implies a lack of, of, of growth. That's why I don't have any tattoos. Oh, dude, I got, but it's true. Dude, I got the ship one. This is the... <laughs> oh, let me see. <laughs> oh, my God. And I... Uh, I got that done in uh, in Canada. Is that your only tattoo? No, no, I got it. They're they're all worse than the other. But it's like, uh, but I got that done in Birmingham because I was just I w at that point I was trying to you know I was trying to establish some sort of identity and I'll take it. I was like, I guess I'm Canada. That's my trip, right? <laughs> I'm the guy that shits in things, you know. But then when you moved on to the Devon Townsend project, yeah, that was after kids. Where was, what, what emotions, what feelings, what senses were driving? Because it is quite different uh, musically. What I felt the need to do was retroactively explain my motivations for going down the avenues that I went with some of the strapping material because part of the impetus for making some of that material was experimenting with a lack of accountability to see wow. what would happen. And the result of that, we say vibe attracts your tribe, my world became, oh. it resonated with things that because I consciously tried to experiment with a lack of accountability, like say whatever the fuck you want, say mm -hmm. it, just do it. And then by doing that, I was like, oh my God, this is what the result of that is. So you became surrounded by negative people. Well, negative things in general, including my, my thought patterns. And what I also found is with uh, some sort of public platform, which is why I have and you know still feel so much admiration for you, comes the sense that there's going to be people that listen to what you say. Yeah. And if what you're saying is coming from a place of consciously trying to create art from a place of lack of accountability, and then people view that as, okay, well, there's a certain amount of success that comes with that, then it becomes almost socially acceptable to follow that. Mm -hmm. So when I realized that there were certain people that were, um, uh, experimenting with their mental health based on interviews that I had done, mm -hmm. things that I've, activities that I had engaged in, I thought, okay, well, after having children, I recognized how much uh, of, my, of my process 
had been unconscious up to that point, yet by consciously having children, I'm like, okay, so now I have to, I have to be at peace with those motivations in order for me to create anything that I feel is worth a shit. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the Devin Townsend project became uh, an experiment, I guess, in retroactively trying to articulate the method in which the strapping stuff uh, was written from and then say, this is why this part of this was appropriate for me. Mm -hmm. This is why this part of it wasn't appropriate. And so the Devin Townsend project ended up being a lot of quiet music, a lot of melodic music, but also concurrently with the strapping stuff, all through that time, I had uh, recorded music that was the polar opposite of that. Like for every strapping record, for, for the first album, there was Ocean Machine. For the second mm -hmm. one, there was Physicist and Infinity. So there was always the, the dichotomy between those two things. But the intent of the writing has always been the foundation of my interest in it. Mm -hmm. So the Devin Townsend project ended up just being uh, a way for me to retroactively analyze what had happened. This sounds fucking horridly pretentious. I'm so sorry. It's like, uh, <laughs> but it worked. And by the time it got to the album Empath, the idea was to make a version of each one of those uh, aesthetic, uh, you know, uh, musical things. Yeah. And then, um, and then try and make a record of it that you can sort of lay it out. It acts as, as, as like a bunch of boulders in the, in the way of the creative path, get them out of the way. And then you see where it goes from there. And the puzzle, the thing that, that you and I, uh, had a moment with there was basically where I find myself now. I did a record last year that was just, it was very complicated for me emotionally. And now I'm in a place where, as we were talking about earlier, what is the reason to continue? Like, what is, mm -hmm. the, what is the fundamental motivation of an artist? Is it to run out of things to say? Is the desire to, to make art in some way rooted to either a fear of death or a need for validation? And if that is the case, does that matter, right? So I don't know, but I really like gardening now. Yeah. <laughs> I really I knew. I weeded yesterday. I got in there, I did it right, I got the little trowel. Um, yeah, man. Because my, my, my philosophy on art is that the, the, goal, the goal of the artist is to return to childhood. Okay. I, I want to... I'll never make anything as good as I, I'll make when I was three playing with Lego. I want to get to that mindset. The, 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 a child playing with Lego doesn't care about whether it's good or bad. They don't even care that they're making something, they're doing Lego. And I think for me, what I'd love to, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing writing, I'm doing music, I'm doing it. It's all about the process, complete right in the middle of the process. Awesome. I'm not thinking about good or bad, process-based stuff. Because if you try and make something good, it ends up being shit. So do, do you think the process is important or is it just something we do? The process is where I get meaning. The pro in the process is where I feel worthy and feel like I deserve to exist and why I exist. Do you think that you, you don't? Now, there's the problem. If I take art away, then it's like, do I have any value as a human being? Fuck yeah. And then I have to be careful because I know <clears throat> my value as a human has to be intrinsic. I have to... If you place your self-esteem and your self-worth in something external, whether it be someone else's opinion, whether it be your work, you're fucked. Totally. We're all born with the same worth. 
all human beings have the exact same worth. No one is better than anybody else. We're too complex to evaluate against each other, you know. But we trick ourselves into thinking, I am worthy because I'm good at this. I am worthy because I'm better than that person. I have no worth because I'm not as good as that person. You know what I mean? I, and I, I need to not be that. Well, I, need, I need to work against that through self-compassion and self-love. Hey, amen. <laughs> it Hypothetically, you take away all your art, your ability to do it. Where would the worth be? In what part of your feel? Being kind to people. Awesome. You know what I mean? 100%. You, you can't go wrong with that. Like. And I think that, comes, I think that comes through in everything you do. 100%. Thank you very much. Yep. Thank you. 100%. Um, Devin has to catch a bus. Yeah. Like, literally, I'm not joking. I'm out of here. So, yeah. I'm going to give you a 10-minute head start because I can tell that you're really worried. Thank you. And i got to pee again. Yeah, and you got to go for a wee-wee. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm going to bid adieu to Devin, right? <laughs> Devin Townsend, thank you so much. I'll see you. Have a good one. Now, after Devin left the stage, because he did have to catch a bus, for real, I decided I was going to take some audience questions and there were some great questions. So here they are. So this is a chicken cross road type question. Okay. You're on a desert island. I'm you not. I'm horse? doing a podcast, man. I'm on stage. Go yeah. on, go on. You have a horse? Yeah. Is it outside? Yeah. <laughs> you have a Subaru. Ah, it is. You're going there. <laughs> you have a Mitsubishi. <sighs> but there, here's the funny question. You have a Toyota Corolla. What do you fucking ride to the town? There's a man here from 2010, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck your Honda Civic, I have a horse outside. Fuck your Subaru, I have a horse outside. Don't. Fuck your Mitsubishi, I have a horse outside. If you're looking for a ride, I have a horse outside. Do you know what? Oh, no, no, I'm not going to take it away from him. He enjoys that song. Do you know what? It's not a bad song. It's just, as Devin was saying, it's a horrible time in my life. <laughs> it was a horrible time in my life. But uh, thank you for that contribution, sir. I mean, I don't know what I'd do. If I'm in a desert, I've got a horse, I've got a Honda Civic. I'm worrying about water, man. You know, I think, if you think of it in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs... Cars aren't there when you're in the desert. I'm thinking about, well, who's got some water here, lads? I'm curious what you think well-being means or could mean when we choose to be online. Oh, that's a good one. I don't know, is there well-being online? I don't know, because the thing is, is that you're performing a version of yourself. Like, the thing is, with being online is... Do you know the way you'd be walking down the road and you almost bump into someone? You know, someone's walking towards you and you almost bump into each other while you're walking and you go, huh? 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 <laughs> and you have a lovely smile with the person. You, you know, when, when you, all, you have a lovely smile and you always have a lovely moment of connection with another human being and you figure it out and you move on. And that tends to be what happens when you almost bump into a person in physical space. 
Now imagine almost bumping into someone in a car. Do you do a little laugh and go, <laughs> You don't. You go, get the fuck out of the way, you stupid prick. And you beep your horn. Because when you're in a car, oh, I forget the name of it. I think it's called the disinhibiting effect. I think it's called that. When you're in a car, you feel protected. Your sense of identity and self is protected by the car. So you project your anger on that other person. And online, it's the same shit. Online... I mean, Jesus Christ, if I'm in a pub and someone disagrees with my opinion, it's like, oh, really? Okay, fine, let's move on. If someone disagrees with you online, you can have a fucking huge giant argument. I've seen massive fights start over fucking bananas. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Is there, the, the, the best type of well-being you can have online is to know when to stay away from it. You know? Like I find with, with Twitter in particular, the best way, to, it's, it's what you don't say. You know? So, like, fuck online for... You're not going to find mental health online, lads. You can read about it. You can read about it, but... Anything where you're performing an avatar of yourself... And let's not forget, when we're speaking in the context of social media, these platforms are designed to appeal to what's called high arousal emotions. That's anger and anxiety. The entire structure makes us communicate in a way where we definitely end up having a fight. So... It's designed against sound mental health. They don't want us agreeing with each other and going, oh, that's fine, I'll talk to you later. It's like, no, 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 you need to argue there for six hours so we can have all of your data, please. <laughs> so it is. Any other questions? Up at the back there, Usher. I'm sorry, Usher, for making you doing all that. that. Um, if you were to go into psychology, like actually go through like how you've talked before yeah. on your podcast... What's you, you mean if I was to train to be... If you were to train, like, get a degree, yeah, degree yeah. in psychology, what field would you go into? So I did train for three years. Um, I trained for three years to be a psychotherapist, and then I gave it up because there was a song about a horse. And <laughs> integrative counselling, I'd go into integrative counselling. I'd like to be a psychotherapist, so I don't think psychology would be my thing. I'd like to be dealing one-on-one -on -one with, with human beings, and I'd be integrative in that... I'd learn as many different fields of psychotherapeutic theory as possible and then use them as appropriate with whoever comes to me. So I'd have uh, gestalt psychology, CBT, all these different things. And depending on the person's needs, I'd be able to take from this toolbox and help them as an individual. So th that's what I do. And it is... It's something I, 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 I am like considering, like when I'm older and I don't want to do this anymore, because I have a bag in my head, I can actually take the bag off and go and train to be a psychotherapist. And then when someone presents to me as, as, with anxiety, they're not like, he did that song about the horse. Because <laughs> if you're trying to be a therapist and your client is like, I remember that song about the horse, you can't establish a therapeutic relationship there. You just can't. <laughs> it's not possible. How are you? Hi, how are you? I'm fantastic. Um, I have a question. How is Napper Tandy? And also, sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you so much. Um, so for those of you who don't know, my cat Silk and Thomas died. Um, a cannabis breeder in Toronto is after breeding a breed of cannabis called Silk and Thomas now, in honor of my dead cat. So I smoked some of that and listened to Creedence Clearwater Revival as he would have wanted. <laughs> Napper Tandy's doing really well. Um, for a while, I was worried because she was grieving for her brother, you know. Herself, my two cats, 
he was deaf and kind of blind. She was his sister. She's very, she, she is his sister. She's strong, but she hasn't been separated with, uh, with him since they were kittens. Like, they were together their whole lives. So she's been, she was weird for about two weeks, and now she's, she's learning how to be a solitary cat now. She's learning how to do it. She's going back to her old patterns. Uh, my ma is feeding her while I'm gone. Um, so I'm getting daily reports about how she's doing. She's eating her food. She's not letting the tomcats come in and eat her food. That was my big fear. So, Napper Tandy's doing well. I'm going to take one more question. Hi, blind boy. How are you? Um, I want to say that I've been going to Ireland my whole life. Uh, my family's Irish. And because of you... I Is that why you're so tall? Do you yes. Get, do, you, do you grow an inch each time you go to Ireland? Facts. Um... Firstly, I want to say that every time I've gone, like, uh, like I've heard negative things about Limerick, but mm -hmm. this last time I was in Roscommon for a family reunion, took a detour to Limerick. Yeah, thank All you. All right. <laughs> um, I specifically took a detour to Limerick to go see Pharmacia and um, uh, Chicken Hut. Loved it. So yeah. thank you for convincing me that Limerick's a good place to visit. My question is... Um, you, you're, you're fascinated by the history of music. Yeah. Um, uh, if you look at, like, rebellion in music, and you mm -hmm. look at folk, and that leads into rock and roll, and that leads into hip-hop, unfortunately, like, all of those uh, genres have sort of been diluted by commercialization yeah. and diluted by that. Do you see any current music... Uh, genre having the potency to have rebellion right now? Um, so it's, it's not, not it, that's a great question. Not the same, like, th so there's a genre called hyper pop. Um, there's a band called 100 Gex. And it's, it rebels against what's considered nice. Like, I mean that in a good way, in the way that Aphex Twin did. It's, very abrasive, difficult music to listen to. It's incredibly fast. Um, I've been told with, with hyper-pop music, it's for Gen Z. It's for a generation who grew up during the... who were children during the recession and had to go to children's parties when Bass Hunter was being played and drink, <laughs> drinking a lot of Coca-Cola, and that's what hyper-pop is. So that, that's, that's what jumps out when I think of rebellion. It's rebelling against it, it's really awful like it, it's but awful does awful can be good that's what i think of um rebelling politically i don't think music is as important anymore i don't think music has cultural weight like it did so the rebellion that you see i mean there's a lot of fucking activism going on now that wasn't really going on uh, 20 years ago i went to art college lads in the 2000s, and a lot of people weren't political. In fucking art college, people were not political. People didn't, people just rented places and didn't worry about rent. If there were, in art college, when I went to art college, there was like three people calling themselves a communist, and they were strange. <laughs> now you're gonna get 90% of people there going, I care about socialism, I care about communism, I don't like what's happening, I want it to change. So, the activism now, they're not expressing it via music, they're expressing it via online identities and memes and actual boots on the ground activism. Um, if it was 30 years ago, maybe they'd have a guitar in their hand, I don't know. 
Who's going to lead the rebellion? Pat Kenny. Um, I don't know who's going to lead the rebellion, but I tell you what we need is a Charles Stewart Parnell. By which I mean, and, and fucking Vancouver could do one too. Something that's happening the world over is, like everywhere you go, the rents are too high. The rents are too fucking high and it's killing everybody. And one of the things is, you can riot, but the powers that be loving all riots. You can quash a riot really, really quickly, and you can call the people who riot thugs, and you can make, you can, that's, that's, they love that. What the powers that be don't want is collective bargaining. They don't want unions. They don't want like renters' unions, like we have in Ireland, uh, Community Action Tenants Union, CATU. What Charles Stuart Parnell did in Ireland in, in the late 1800s was there was a problem with landlords then too. He just got a bunch of people together and said, how about everybody don't pay rent? How about everybody civil disobedience? And that is what terrifies the powers that be. They're not scared of a riot. They're scared of everybody getting together and going, I'm not going to pay rent. This is unacceptable. I feel that this violates my human rights. I'm just going to stop all of us at once. That's scary shit. You know what I mean? Okay, um... It's a quarter past ten. They're very strict on curfews in Canada. Um, thank you very much. Do you know, the Vancouver accent, I, the, the Toronto accent is something else, isn't it? It sounds like a Jamaican person making a formal complaint. Couldn't believe it when I heard it. <laughs> All right, um, you've been a wonderful audience. Thank you. To Devin Townsend, who has left us. Have a lovely night. Oh, that was this week's podcast. I'm going to be back next week with some hot takes. I couldn't do hot takes this week because I'm in a hotel like Mr. Worldwide, recording between a mattress and a window. So I might do something about the history of door handles next week. I don't know. We'll see what happens. To all of you glorious people. Rub a dog. Say hello to a worm. Wink at a cat. And I'll catch you next week. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Yuffie X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.